Dueling Genre Productions presents. Oh my god, do you see that? When a freak accident strikes McKinney City, ordinary citizens are given amazing abilities. I can move things with my mind. Oh my god, I'm flying. I can fly. I can teleport and I can fly. Super senses. What, like Daredevil? We are just playing fast and loose with this whole science thing today, aren't we? Now, there are villains. Billy, when you have an arch nemesis, do you just kill them immediately? No. You tie the ropes just loose enough so that they can keep escaping. That way, when you finally do win the day, you can sleep well knowing that you rose to the challenge. Your brain works differently than other people's, doesn't it? And heroes. Leah Markowitz, Gwendolyn Allen, Jeffrey Gibson, Mindy Gibson, Simon Holt, Splendid, you're all here. I'm going to make you all into superheroes. Screw it. Let's go save the day. The Powerful. After I drain everyone here, McKinney City will be mine. I'm going to show this whole city what real passion truly is. And the underdogs. You're all imagining me as a singing, dancing chipmunk right now, aren't you? The people in that store need help, and we can help them in a way no one else can. We have great power, which means they're our responsibility. I mean, Jesus, what's the point of having five freaking Spider-Man movies if we can't even learn to do that? Geek by Night, an original podcast series about five friends running a comic book store with superpowers. You're really going to keep running a comic book shop while trying to be superheroes? It might not always be easy, but I think the world could use a few more underdogs. Available at DuelingGenre.com and podcast apps everywhere. Dueling Genre Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week I'm joined by Jacqueline Foster to talk about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern from the play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead. Welcome, Jacqueline. Thank you. Very glad to have you. Uh, for any listeners who are unfamiliar, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead is a play written by Tom Stoppard that was first staged in 1966. It is an absurdist comedy using minor characters from Shakespeare's Hamlet to provide commentary on life and death and meaning and lots of existential stuff. And I think that works as a short summary of this piece. Uh, Jacqueline, do you remember when you first came to... Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead when you first became aware of it or first read it or saw it yeah it was during my high school AP English class of me and 11 other nerds that seems like a good setting to engage Tom Stoppard in as a general you know like his works in general but also Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead in particular yeah I really like this one and then when we got into some of the heavier existentialist literature I ended up dropping the class because I was too depressed Wait, so you liked this one, but then there was heavier existentialism that was still coming around the corner? Yeah. And I was like, I can't I can't do this. Like this this, one's pretty existential. I was like, the first play was fun. Like it's it's existential, but it's funny, you know? You enjoy it as you read it, as opposed to the existentialist stuff that's just like, does life have meaning? And you're like, I don't know anymore. Right. Uh, so like there's, 
I mean, both the modernists and the postmodernists have a lot of that existential dread about them. Modernists weren't yet ready to have fun with it. So maybe we're getting some of the modernist stuff, but the postmodernists are a lot of times they're like, yeah, who knows if life has any meaning. So let's have some fun while we're here. Whereas the modernists are like, nothing that we ever were taught has any value. So that's rough. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, I remember coming across it in, I can't remember if it was junior high or high school. I know it was in a drama class and I'm pretty sure it was watching someone perform one of the scenes in which Gildan Stern and Rosencrantz are trying to role play, um, a discussion with Hamlet and they get confused about who is supposed to be whom and who literally is whom. And there's uh, a lot of witty, witty dialogue that happens. Uh, and I think it was one of the first texts for me that was saying, let's take these commonly known texts and have a lot of fun with them now <laughs> and mm-hmm. and use like the meaning that exists in that original text uh, to uh, be a jumping off point for some new commentary that requires some familiarity with that original text, but is going to be saying something new and different as well, which is something we see all the time. But I think it was one of the first texts that I really grasped onto um, that that was happening with this. Yeah, and opposed to a, a lot of texts or even fan fiction that take minor characters and then sort of flesh out their backstory and develop them into whole people, this one says, let's operate within the constraints of the original text and these minor characters, they're, they're still these minor stock characters and wouldn't that be bewildering? And I think that was an innovation that really um, caught my attention the first time I read it. Yeah, I like that differentiation that you just spotted that um, uh, a lot of texts that you like, like even some very popular texts like Wicked that say we're going to tell a known story, but from this different character's point of view, it's all about expanding and deepening our understanding of certain characters or twisting what we thought we knew from the original. And this one says we have these minor characters that basically all we know about them is that people can't keep straight which one is Rosencrantz and which one is Guildenstern. And that is about it. And now we take that as their defining characteristic trait, you know, characteristics. Uh, and even they can't keep straight which one is which. And now what do we learn? <laughs> if, if that's yeah, our launching exactly. off point. Yeah, it reminds me of you often hear the phrase that everyone is a hero in their own story. And I think it's an interesting challenge to write a play where these people are literally not the hero in their own story. But but they're made the protagonists, but they're, exactly. they're definitely not heroic or or even like driving of the action. Exactly. Well, we'll get into some of how that works after we do the long summary. Before we do that, let's cover a little trivia. Um, the title of this play is a direct quote from Hamlet, Act 5, Scene 2, in which we discover that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And it's... Uh, Hamlet is a wonderful text, but there's some weird, odd subplots <laughs> that kind of just get trimmed <laughs> or mentioned as happening off stage. Like a whole pirate attack happens off stage in Hamlet, um, which we'll we'll talk about some uh, later. Uh, but this this announcement that a couple characters that have been floating around the play are just now dead is is I, I remember that always striking me as odd. Kind of like why are they here in the play? <laughs> is, is kind of yeah. what I take away when that announcement happens, and so it's a great source. Um, for this jumping off off point of of what you were mentioning earlier, um, Tom Stoppard is not the first person to try and do this move with Rosencrantz in particular uh, and Guildenstern in particular. Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan fame wrote a short comedy titled Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in 1874, though it took him a couple of years to get produced uh, over a decade before it was actually produced because everyone said this is a little too weird um, to be to be doing. 
the play has been adapted for BBC Radio three times. In 1990, Tom Stoppard adapted his play for screen, and he also directed the film. It starred Tim Roth as Guildenstern and Gary Oldman as Rosencrantz. And while it has a 62% positive rating, um, the negative reviews often point out that brilliant meta-theater does not always translate to film. <laughs> and I think that's a valid criticism. Have you seen the film adaptation? I have, yeah. I, I think it's true that some of the, the tricks that happen on stage feel very different when they're done on film. I, I, I do think so. I also think, though, that the film allowed them to to incorporate some some interesting visual jokes that are a little more difficult to perform on stage just because you can get in close and kind of take the time to do effects that are, are more difficult. On stage. Well, and even also, I, I think the performances, too, like getting up on their faces for the looks of confusion is different on film for a close up versus sitting in an audience during a stage yes. production of this. But there are elements of the play where um, like some of the meta theater is that they're walking around on a stage and then suddenly it is Elsinore Castle and, and it wasn't a moment before. And that's something mm-hmm. that as audiences were trained to do in uh, in theater all the time that, you know, crossing from one side of the stage to the other is a completely different place. And we just accept that. In film, where you see like the characters are suddenly standing inside Elsinore Castle, it's just it's a very different experience than than um, what you would see in a theater. Absolutely. Um, Stoppard's style of self-aware meta commentary has been adapted into other postmodern texts uh, that kind of riff on this riff on Shakespeare, and these include a a film called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Undead which is about an off-Broadway play written by a vampire that is telling uh, the story of Hamlet from, I think it's Horatio's point of view in that one. <laughs> but in that one, Horatio is a vampire. Uh, that I had not, I've never seen that one. It, I was just looking at a plot summary online. But then there's also a comic book series called Tag and Bink Are Dead, which is about stormtroopers who are on the periphery of major events in the Star Wars universe. Um. Let's see, a little trivia about Tom Stoppard himself. He was born in Czechoslovakia in 1937, and he fled Nazi occupation as a child refugee. And after a time in India, he settled in England. He is one of the most acclaimed playwrights alive today. For popular audiences, he's perhaps most well-known, though, for co-writing the screenplay for Shakespeare in Love. And a lot of people have also seen his work when he used a pen name to do a late rewrite on the script for Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade on which he punched up a lot of the dialogue. And Spielberg has said that though he is uncredited, Stoppard is, and this is the quote from Spielberg, responsible for almost every line of dialogue in the film. So that's a that's a significant bit of work. And it's also been rumored, though unconfirmed, that through a pen name, he did work on Revenge of the Sith and also Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow film. This man, he has a very odd catalog when you start to poke around everything that mm-hmm. he's written. Um. Though he had written several plays before Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, uh, this was his breakout hit. It's what he became known for. It won the Tony for Best Play when it premiered in New York. Um, and after this, he was like known as, as a playwright to keep your eye on. And he has won lots of awards. I'm not even going to list them all. Um, but I, I think it's worth noting, you have made it when you have an award named after yourself. And Tom Stoppard has that. There is a Tom Stoppard Award. And I think that means you've you've made it. <laughs> here at that point particularly if you're still alive and that's happening absolutely (laughs) 
Uh, he is very prolific. He's written one novel, almost 40 plays, more than 11 radio plays. Because, uh, like I said, he was born in 37. So he during the heyday of like radio plays, he was producing those works. Also, during the heyday of live television plays, uh, he, he wrote six different television plays. And he's worked on 15 different scripts and screenplays for Hollywood. So the man is busy, <laughs> I guess, is, is all I can say about that. Have you read any of Tom Stoppard's other other plays? I haven't, although I learned just now that I have seen several of his movies. <laughs> uh, I, I think the like uh, Shakespeare in Love. He is it's that one is credited to Tom Stoppard, but it looked like a bunch of his other Hollywood work he's done under pen names. Well, and that's the that's the fun part of the idea that life doesn't matter. So let's have some fun with it is you don't have to take yourself too seriously as this acclaimed playwright. And you can say, I'm going to go work on Indiana Jones for a little while. <laughs> and that is my personal favorite Indiana Jones film. And I, I think it's got a lot of good lines. So thank you, Tom Stoppard, for for working on that one. All right, well, before we move on to the long summary of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, oh, and I guess the other minor bit of trivia, we've had a dance around it, but obviously uh, this uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are, as we noted, minor characters in Hamlet. They show up in a handful of scenes. They are summoned uh, in, in the play of Hamlet. They're summoned by King Claudius and uh, Queen Gertrude as Hamlet's old buddies from school, and they want them to come talk to their friend Hamlet because they think Hamlet's been acting oddly and find out what is going on with Hamlet. Uh, and then at a certain point in the play, uh, they are supposed to take Hamlet to England for, you know, they tell him, go, you know, he's had some trouble here. He's murdered someone. Let's get him out of here. Uh, and they're given a letter to give to the King of England. Uh, and the letter is actually an order for the King of England to execute Hamlet. Uh, Hamlet discovers this and switches out a letter so that the King of England will kill Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. But we don't see those parts happen in the play. We're just kind of told later on that that happened. And then we're told that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. So that's their role in Hamlet. And that makes for an interesting set of characters to try and turn into protagonists. Uh, before we move on to the long summary of this play, listeners, we want to thank you for downloading this episode and listening. We especially want to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are uh, shorter episodes that we release monthly in which we break down newly released films or trailers or talk about TV shows we're watching or books we're reading. And we also give monthly updates on our fantasy box office. All patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss on the podcast. Now for a long summary of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And I'll be addressing the plot, not the wordplay. And a lot of the charm of this story is in the wordplay. If you have the chance to see a performance of this, I definitely recommend it. Or even uh, read it, reading the text. It's uh, something that I think translates pretty well to a red text as well as a performance piece. So we open with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern wandering uh, and flipping a coin to pass the time. Against all laws of probability, the coin keeps landing on heads over and over and over again. And Guildenstern wonders if they're in a place where the laws of chance don't work. They also wonder why they're here. A troop of actors enter and offer many double entendres and some single entendres as the head of the group of actors discuss the role of actors in the world. Suddenly the scene changes and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are inside Elsinore Castle. Hamlet and Ophelia run by and then Claudius enters and thanks them for coming and asks Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to spy on Hamlet for him. 
Rosencrantz and Guildenstern debate uh, and role play, debate whether they should do this, and then also role play the best ways to probe Hamlet for more information. But mostly they just confuse themselves about who is playing whom and literally who is whom. They can't remember which one is Rosencrantz and which one is Guildenstern for a little bit. Uh, they make a few efforts to get information from Hamlet, but they really fail to gain anything new. Uh, then the troop of actors that they saw when they were wandering around, they arrive and debate death and whether it could be portrayed accurately by actors on stage. Uh, the actors are preparing to perform the play within a play, which is now a play within a play within a play. Within a play, I guess. We can keep going forever. Uh, Claudius is disturbed by the play that the actors perform. He and Gertrude ask Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to go find Hamlet because he has murdered Polonius. Uh, they try to trap Hamlet and they fail very badly. The scene then jumps to an outdoor setting and Guildenstern reveals that they've been asked to accompany a recently captured Hamlet and take him to England to deliver him to the king. On the boat to England, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern wonder if they are dead. Hamlet is sleeping and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern uh, read the letter from King Claudius that they are supposed to deliver to the King of England. The letter instructs the King of England to kill Hamlet. Now Rosencrantz and Guildenstern debate what they should do, and we, but then eventually they fall asleep and we see Hamlet switch out their letter with a different one. Just then, pirates attack, and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and Hamlet hide in barrels on the ship. When the attack is over, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and the troop of actors climb out of the barrels, but Hamlet is now missing. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern reread the letter, but they discover it now orders the King of England to murder them. In anger, Guildenstern takes a knife from the leader of the troop of actors, and he stabs him. And this guy dies, but then he jumps up to applause from the troop, and he reveals that the knife was just a stage prop, and he was performing his death. The actors discuss the different types of death that they have been trained to perform. Rosencrantz is fed up with this, and he's sad because he knows his death is near. And then Guildenstern laments that they did not take the opportunity to change their fate when they had a chance. Now the stage shifts to Elsinore Castle, where we hear Horatio's final speech as he stands over all the dead bodies that are there at the end of Hamlet, which is really everyone is dead at the end of Hamlet. The end. You know, Jacqueline, when you read it as a plot summary, it feels a little odd. <laughs> it does, but I think um, that that points to the oddity of their entire place in Hamlet, where it's just the most random sequence of convenient events to further the plot of Hamlet. Yes, they uh, they are um, not fully fleshed out characters. <laughs> Yeah, in, in, in Hamlet, which uh, makes it all the more interesting to see them um, not so much carrying a plot of their own, but carrying like a thematic exploration of meaning on their own. Mm -hmm. So if you were going to try and delve into Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, one of the most famous plays of the 20th century, what do you think is the entry point for a discussion of like explaining the weirdness or um, understanding why the weirdness is there. I think for me, one of the, the biggest things I took away from it is that so many of the scenes feel like um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are just waiting around killing time until they're next due to further the plot in Hamlet. And it's almost, I almost get a sense of watching some, some minor B-list actors backstage just goofing off with each other until they wait to show up on Hamlet, which is happening on some other stage in the same theater. Uh, I like that. And I know this play is often um, compared with Waiting for Godot. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, the, the idea of waiting around for meaning. I think it also can be 
really uh, successfully or interestingly contrasted with um, is it six author or six characters or seven characters in search of an author? Six characters in search of an author, um, which is a very metatextual play um, in which there are characters that like don't have identities yet, and they're looking for an author to give them identities, <laughs> right? Uh, and I remember yeah. reading that one in grad school and latching onto that one is like, oh, there's something really interesting here. And I think there's some similar ideas about um, what characters have meaning, uh, you know, what gives characters meaning? Is it being acted upon? Is it acting for themselves? Is it the audience interpreting them? Is it them uh, presenting something to the audience? Like all of that is there. And that's one of the reasons why the only other characters we get in this are a troop of actors that talk about the art of acting over and over. Yeah. Um... I, I also think one of the the biggest things that stands out to me is if you jump to the end and um, they're discussing their impending death, which, first of all, is really funny because they've read the letter to the King of England, but Hamlet's gone now. There's nobody forcing them to deliver the letter to the King of England, but they just take it for granted that their death is going to occur and you almost get a sense that they know how Hamlet ends. And so they it doesn't occur to them to take any action to try to, you know, divert the ship to France or just show <laughs> up in England, but not deliver the letter to the king. Um, and that's where they say there must have been a time in the beginning where we could have said no, but somehow we missed it. Oh, well, we'll know better next time. And the idea that we'll know better next time uh, almost gives me the sense that they're they're stuck in some sort of time loop. You know, they're living this experience over and over and over, uh, kind of like actors performing the same play over and over and over. And that's really driven home in the movie version where the pirate ship folds up into um, into the cart that the troop of actors use to haul around all of their stage props and the the cart kind of trundles off into the woods by themselves yeah and i think they had to do something for the film that's different because uh, again this is one of the areas where they like the translation you're you're kind of forced into a, some different themes because on stage like the audience part of them knows these actors who are playing rosencrantz and gillenstern are doing this every single night with a film that's not true <laughs> right mm -hmm. uh and, and so i thought that was um a clever move by Stoppard in adapting this to, to like, again, you know, force or, or bring in some of the themes from the play into the language of film and, and some of the experience uh, of film, which is, which is so different from the experience of seeing live theater. Absolutely. And, and something I think that's funny about that, the idea that as an audience, it doesn't occur to you that film actors are performing the same film over and over again is a little while ago I read an interview with Helena Bonham Carter about her experience playing Bellatrix Lestrange in Harry Potter. And she was talking about how as a theater actor, you have to have your lines down pat. And so she shows up to the set of Half-Blood Prince and she has all of her lines completely memorized. And all of these actors who are used to movies, they barely know their lines and they're having to cut, you know, every, every couple of minutes to remind actors of what's going on. And so it occurs to me that behind the scenes, film actors might actually end up performing the same scene over and over and over <laughs> more often than theater people who are performing it for a live audience every night. That is interesting. The, uh, yeah, the, again, it's just like a different, 
there, there's a different set of expectations for the different kinds of storytelling um, that that are being brought in. Um, and you're and you're right. Like the right there in the moment, they're going to repeat the same line dozens of times for the camera and for different camera angles and, you know, for, for giving slightly different performances to the editors. Um, whereas for, for stage actors, it's like, you got to run through the entire scene. There's no resetting. Um, and yeah. And, and uh, our, our perception of media is so heavily mediated by the fact that we are like by the act of watching the media and that's completely disconnected from the actual experience that actors are having performing the media in a lot of cases, which I think is one of the themes of um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, for instance, when the the leader of the troop of actors is talking about how he's just performing a death and technically every death on stage is performed, but we think of most of them as real and this one is not real because he stops and explains that he's performing the death. Yeah, and this is, um, you know, it, it's a very postmodern thing to ensure that the audience does not get lost in a story and doesn't feel, um, you know, that death on stage is a real stage. It's, it's a very postmodern thing to stop and say, don't forget, well, viewers, uh, that this is a choice that has been made by a writer and a performance by an actor. And we want you to be thinking about why we're doing it this way right now, not to just get swept up in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, so why do you think that is one of the things that Stoppard is choosing to highlight? Like this uh, this relationship between uh, the the creators of a story, and, and particularly theater, and, and the audience in terms of, of meaning making. Why is that something that he's going to stop and uh, kind of force us to digest and, and to be mindful of as we're watching a play be performed in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? Um, I think one of the things that attracts us to media is the fact that we see ourselves in the characters and that these, you know, artificial performances feel like they have relevance to our real life. And this kind of muddies the water a bit. And it says, it reminds us, you know, if these performances are so artificial, how come we can identify with that? How come I can identify with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in their very self-aware, we are but characters in a play um, representation in in this in this work. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, and by adding that layer for for us as an audience, where we have to be mindful of the artificiality of the performance, um, it centers the themes for us because you know they a lot of these themes are voiced by the troop of actors. Um, and a lot of the themes are said right up front in the conversations that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern have as they're musing about what world they're in. What are the laws that govern this world? What are um, you know, the, the nature of their existence, which I don't know how this so, does it so successfully, but it very successfully manages to center those themes, but still be very entertaining and laugh out loud funny at times. I think exactly. I think sometimes when stories are centering their themes and kind of pushing it on you, it can start to feel like you're being preached at. And, and I mm-hmm. think Tom Stafford does avoid that that issue. Yeah, and, and I think that a lot of people can relate to the feeling of just kind of being stuck in a rut and waiting around and just being useful to other people, but not making any real progress on what you would like to do with your life. Um, 
Uh, yeah, they're, they're very much being acted upon, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yeah, it, it's kind of like if you're just working some sort of dead-end job, and you just go to this job, and you don't find meaning in it, but you're just doing it because society says you have to, and you have bills to pay. I think um, that can create the same kind of existential despair as apparently being this minor character in a play. <laughs> well, I, I love how... Um, exaggerated that existential despair is in this play to the point that like literally where they are changes without them having any control over it. <laughs> like they're mm-hmm. wondering the words, wondering what they're supposed to be doing. And one of them mentions, uh, you know, we had a summons, didn't we? And the next thing you know, they're literally standing in, in Elsinore castle um, with, mm-hmm. with no explanation of how they've moved or, or been transported. But as these minor characters in Hamlet, you know, they come on stage after they've been summoned and they do exactly as they're directed to a few times, and uh, then then they're killed off stage. <laughs> you know that's that's mm-hmm. their existence in Hamlet. And so uh, for Stoppard, he says, "Okay, let's let's see what's going on with these guys." But I'm not going to like deepen their backstory with Hamlet. I'm not going to give them grand motivations or explain or even a character arc. We're just going to say the, you know, what happens to characters who only exist for the purpose of someone else's story in this case you know hamlet and and claudius yeah and stopper doesn't try to come up with like some sort of fan theory of why pirates just <laughs> randomly show up and conveniently <laughs> cause something to happen when the pirates show up as a coach gilded are just like sure pirates why not i mean i guess this might as well happen too well, and he also like acknowledges, I think, some of the absurdity of it by having the troop of actors just crawling out of barrels next to them because, oh, you need more characters here. Here they are. <laughs> like, they're, yeah. they're going to be here. Yeah, like, these are... Yeah. I also really like what he does in the film version where there's this kind of running visual joke where Rosencrantz keeps almost replicating one of the classic science experiments that you learn about where, like, you know, Galileo or someone discovers this foundational principle of physics. But as soon as he tries to show it to Guildenstern, every time something goes wrong for really, like, banal reasons, and Guildenstern just looks at Rosencrantz like he's an idiot, and Rosencrantz never manages to stumble upon this great essential truth because, um, you know, the the pot breaks or someone walks by at exactly the wrong moment. and. I really like that as a historian of science because a lot of the theory in the field of history of science focuses on how, you know, science always acts like it's discovering these abstract truths, but you're discovering them through this very artificial, manipulated laboratory experiment. And uh, so Tom Stoppard kind of brilliantly manages to depict the the founding question of my field of study in just this repeated bumbling effort of these two minor characters who don't know what they're doing. Um, in presenting these themes with the, uh, you know, some of the, the issues that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern feel in not having uh, agency of their themselves, they're only being acted upon by others. And they also have these meditations on death. And we see the exploration of the performance of death by actors from the troupe and Rosencrantz Gillenstern feel the, the inevitability of their own death. And we end the whole play with the, the finals, the bloodbath at the end of Hamlet when every character, but Horatio mm-hmm. is dead. Um, 
do you think Stoppard actually reaches any conclusion or is he just having fun with the audience and ask, you know, asking some open-ended questions that we are invited to dwell upon? Um, I mean, I think that reaching a firm conclusion would almost go against the whole spirit of the play. But I do think that at one point they remark that in a tragedy, the bad people die, um, die terribly and the good people die unluckily. And so the idea that death is inevitable for all of us, but we frame it differently for good characters and bad characters. And, you know, it, it causes you to wonder, well, which is the case for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? Are they dying terribly because Hamlet has managed to, you know, poetically switch the letter so that they're bringing themselves to their own death instead of Hamlet because they're bad characters? Or are they dying unluckily because they were randomly set upon by pirates? So there's, there is like this uh, explication of a morality, you know, of a, yes. um, like a greater uh, work, particularly within fiction, right? Because they're acknowledging within tragedy, you know, within tragedies, this is what happens. So we're told there's this moral truth uh, that should drive the action of creators of tragedy that should uh, inform their decisions and who's going to die and how, but we're still left with a lot of ambiguity for the protagonists of the very play we're watching. Exactly. And I think ambiguity is something that uh, Stoppard is very comfortable with. <laughs> and he mm -hmm. would like the audience to also feel very comfortable with this idea that it could be either. Uh, yeah. Let's, let, let's think about that. Let that simmer in your mind uh, as, as you think about this play that if, uh, if your experience is like my Jacqueline, like once you're first exposed to this play, it's kind of one that you don't forget. Um, there's a mm -hmm. lot of texts that I've engaged with that. Even if I really loved them at the time, if I'm asked to like think back on the plot or the themes or tell what happened, I'd have to really dig. But I think from my first exposure to Rosencrantz, Gimson are dead. I kind of knew what was going on and it's never really left me. Yes, exactly. The The ambiguity lets it stick in your mind and it kind of gives you something to chew on after you've finished watching or reading um, the play. And I think that's one of the big draws of this kind of postmodern existentialism is that um, unlike unlike kind of our current culture where people think that just endlessly finding plot holes passes for her film criticism, um, <laughs> encouraging people to be comfortable with ambiguity and with things not quite making sense. I, I think that's a valuable life tool where um, being able to disengage from black and white thinking um, a lot of the big moments in our lives where, you know, people close to us actually die or where we have a setback or where, we're incredibly lucky, but other people we know aren't lucky. Those require ambiguity for us to make sense of them. And I think um, a lot of that meta commentary aspect of this, where you're seeing plays within plays and they don't let you forget that this is a performance and that there's a writer behind every beat that you're seeing. It, um, it heightens that awareness that this ambiguity can be, a choice that is deliberate, that is not a plot hole to not tie tidily wrap everything up, that it's not a mistake that you're left wondering uh, at the end of a text. And I think there are texts that can be fantastic that do like 
give you a twist at the end that does make you rethink everything that you saw, but it actually all fits together like a perfect jigsaw puzzle. That can be a great thing. But also, it can be really great to have a text that leaves you with questions that are still open-ended that you're supposed to ponder at the end, that it doesn't... Um, you know, tie, tie everything together. And somehow Rosencrantz and Gillenstern are dead successfully um, tells you what open-ended question, you know, what the themes are, but also leaves it open-ended enough that, that it's, um, you know, your, your mind can't help but kind of work on it a little bit. Yeah. And I think a lot of these themes about like the meaning of life and the inevitability of death, they show, they've shown up in literature, literally since the earliest literature we have, you know, with like ancient Greek plays and stuff. And it's because we've never been able to completely answer these themes in like some sort of all-encompassing, I have the final word and I've completely explained it way. The fact that we were able to continue to produce um, stories uh, speaks to the fact that there's always another facet of these questions to choose on. And so I, I, I like that this, this does leave it so open-ended because... Um, it's, you know, it shows that even classics like Hamlet, there's still something to explore, even with these very minor characters that don't even make sense within the original play, and uh, Stoppard isn't trying to make sense of them in his own play. And I, I, I do want to stick it, uh, take this connection to Hamlet uh, back for, for a little bit of discussion. So I, I read you know, my plot summary of what is the actual action that happens um, in the play or on screen. If you're seeing the film adaptation, it's pretty close uh, alignment. Uh, Stoppard, like we said, he made some moves to acknowledge the the different language of, of screen uh, storytelling versus stage storytelling. But the, the basic beats of the plot remain the same between the, the play and the film. Um, but how much do you, does a familiarity with Hamlet or, or how necessary is a familiarity with Hamlet, do you think, to an appreciation of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead? Well, I think that um, you can definitely enjoy the movie without knowing anything about Hamlet, or even if you just, you know, have watched The Lion King, and so you have kind of an idea <laughs> of the bare bones of the plot. Um, but I, I do think that... Um, at least where I grew up, Hamlet was the classic 12th grade text that everyone's English teacher made them read. And then the rest of the books you read for uh, 12th grade English kind of varied from teacher to teacher, but everyone read Hamlet. And so everyone I knew had this experience of just struggling through this, you know, really outdated prose and all of these words you don't know and trying to just understand the plot of Hamlet well enough for the exam and um, in a way, the, the fun of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern makes me appreciate Hamlet so much more because it kind of validates, like, yeah, that whole subplot with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and the pirates didn't make any sense. And that doesn't mean that you're a, you know, a bad student if you read that part and were like, wait, what's going on? Why are there pirates? This feels like a, like a soap opera twist, right? Yes. <laughs> To suddenly have some crazy thing that, and um, not just like a soap opera twist, but it's a weird off-screen soap opera twist. We're like, oh, this other yeah. thing happened because we lost. It almost feels like we lost the contract with the actors, so we're just carrying on. Uh, we're gonna explain exactly. why they're they're not here off-screen. 
Yeah, like if if Shakespeare were writing today, I think there would have been some sort of expectation to foreshadow that at least, like just having some of the early scenes, you know, King Claudio is discussing like, oh, there's been more pirate attacks. They've been such a nuisance, you know, to just kind of foreground the fact that pirate attacks are common or something. Whereas um, in Hamlet, they just come so completely out of left field and we... uh, I don't know enough about 16th century literature to know if that was common for kind of left field things like that at the time, but at least today, uh, partly because of our culture of looking for plot holes and everything, we we feel a little bit uncomfortable with something coming that far out of left field. Well, and I think uh, Stoppard, it, it's something that definitely sticks with him because in Shakespeare and Love, isn't uh, there like a first draft of Romeo and Juliet that Shakespeare's writing is called Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter? <laughs> you know, I, I think it's something that kind of sticks out as like an oddity in, in Shakespeare, uh, this, this pirate attack. And it's something that he, you know, he brings up again uh, in, in Shakespeare and Love. I love that idea that Shakespeare just really, really liked pirates, but maybe (laughs) he didn't have, like, the necessary production effects to stage a literal sea battle on stage, so he has to write it all off stage. (laughs) Like, the CGI budget wasn't high enough for a pirate ship attack. Sorry, Shakespeare. (laughs) Yeah, um, I think it's one of those situations where familiarity with the original text can make you appreciate more some of what happens in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, but also Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead stands on its own um, as a text. Yeah. But like when you start to see some of the, some of the scenes that are direct quotations from, from Hamlet, like, it's like, oh, okay, I know, I know this one. Or like when the troop of actors are there in Elsinore Castle, you're like, oh, they're going to do the mousetrap play. Um, you, you, you know where it's going and you, you can kind of give yourself a pat on the back for, you know, for getting the references. Hamlet is is like the Easter eggs of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yes, I, I, I like that that description. Uh, but it's not, uh, you know, like, like for me, the, the best Easter eggs in films, it's something that you can stop and appreciate. But if you don't get it, it doesn't like leave you feeling left out exactly like sometimes when there are easter eggs in films where it's like uh you know an actor who played this role you know 35 years ago on a tv movie and they show up and like mug for the camera for a second and it's like why is this very minor side character that has one line of dialogue getting so much close-up screen time like it, it feels like it screeches the action to a halt um mm. and, and and you feel like you're missing out on something because like three people in your theater cheer or laugh at that and you're like uh that line wasn't actually funny what is <laughs> what, what's happening right now um but but good easter eggs are there if you know them but they don't like draw enough attention to themselves that it's like oh, i'm missing something they don't and when this whole play is called rosencrantz and guildenstern are good i think any reference to hamlet is safe ground to say you should know this is coming this one's not like a, a hidden deep reference but i think you can still feel um that that sense of being in on it more if you have more familiarity with hamlet yeah, and I think that the way that Stoppard framed it, where Rosencrantz and Guildenstern really don't have any idea why they're here or even who they are and which one is which, um, they feel a little bit bewildered about being thrown into the plot of Hamlet. And so we're allowed to feel bewildered al- along with them if we don't remember Hamlet. Yes, uh, and we should feel bewildered. I think even if you do know Hamlet, you're, there's the moment where like, wait, they're in the castle now? Uh, okay. 
um or or uh, like who's that just ran by and it's you know it's ophelia you know those those moments you're you're supposed to be a little bit confused because the you know the characters themselves are confused too mm-hmm. um I I, th- I think any discussion of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is uh, lacking if we don't address that there's just really witty wordplay and fun punning that happens and word pretzels that you kind of have to be paying close attention to and then and then when it ties itself off it's just like really satisfying to see um, like a, a, a true wordsmith like a you know an artist with language is presenting something for you right here mm-hmm. and I, I would I would assume. Uh, like I, I, I have never actually seen this performed, um, and I, I would love to see a staged version of this. I've only seen the film version and some scenes, and I've read the whole thing in, in high school and I think in, in college for different courses we read, we read it as well. So uh, I think there's a lot of room for different interpretations and in how some of this wordplay gets presented and how um, in on the joke an actor chooses to play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And I can see a whole range of kind of the sardonic sly. Uh, yes, I'm in on everything or the kind of doofus, I don't know what's going on version. And I think they can all work successfully. Yeah, I think this would definitely be a really fun play to see on stage multiple times with different casts. Which um, I I think that's um, part of the magic of stage versus uh, film acting, right? Like like the the version of um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead from 1990. Like that is locked in. <laughs> like the, mm-hmm. everyone who watches that forever is getting the exact same version. But you know, right now there's going to be a dozen stage versions of this that are running across America. And anyone who goes and sees one of those, uh, you know, everyone has its own experience and slightly different meaning that is being made by the actors. And even from night to night, a slightly different interpretation that's going to come from the audience, uh, you know, depending on, you know, what lines stand up to them or, or a slightly different choice that's made by the actor. And I think it's part of the magic of stage that this um, text really wants to highlight that there is something different. And, and Stoppard, uh, like I mentioned in the trivia, he knows radio and film and television. Uh, you know, he, he's worked in all those worlds, but there's something that is different and special about uh, stage performance, I think, that he, he wants to acknowledge and make sure that audiences are aware of. Yeah, I think stage really makes, uh, we're more comfortable with the death of the author in stage performances and with the variability you get. Um from performance to performance, whereas if something is only ever a book or a movie, you so often hear people complain that the way this happened in the movie isn't the way I imagined it in the book, and um, not not appreciating that that both can be true. You know, it's fiction, and so both portrayals and interpretations can be true. Yeah, I mean, there like Shakespeare is you know the playwright, and there is the like it is shocking almost if you see two Shakespeare productions in a row that are both set in Elizabethan era, you know, settings like our expectation now is that everyone who does a Shakespeare play is doing something to put their own twist or spin on it. They're going to change the setting. They're going to change the costuming, um, all these other things, even if they're keeping the original language. And so we, we have come to accept a certain level of flexibility with Shakespeare's works, which I think also um, is, is one of the layers that we get with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern dead that we allow or expect uh, playfulness with Shakespeare, even as we put him up on this pedestal, that it is Shakespeare, it is the bard, these are his words, these are the words of the English language that matter most. But as you're saying, like, uh, even with like the author, we accept, you know, the, the, the death of the author a bit more for interpretation of, of these texts. Um, and for whatever reason, when it comes to adaptations of more 
uh, recent literature that we feel like we discovered. And, and certainly we're seeing uh, with online fan culture, like there's a sense of ownership of these texts and that there's only one vision that the fans have that they want to see portrayed on screen. And if it's not that vision, there's like petitions and online rebellion. But with Shakespeare, for whatever reason, maybe it's just the amount of time that he's, uh, his works have existed. We, we expect that elasticity of interpretation. Well, and we have such a long history of essentially producing Shakespeare fan fiction as, <laughs> you know, media in its own right. You know, The Lion King, She's the Man. Uh, uh, Ten Things I Hate About You. Yes, that's what I was looking for. You you, you know, we, we, we've just come to accept that one of the things that makes Shakespeare so great is that he is just this endless mine for our own creative uh, playfulness. And I think that's uh, some of the magic that gets captured in Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. We're going to take, it's not just that Hamlet can be played with. It's like, we're going to take these two characters that you could forget or even there. And that I think, like I was in a high school production of Hamlet. I am not in, you know, it was a high school production of Hamlet, but that one obviously got a trim because the actual full production of Hamlet is like almost four hours long. If you, if you do the original text. So there's, there's multiple versions of trimmed versions of Hamlet for uh, shorter productions. And I think in some of them, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern don't even exist. (laughs) You know, we just, we're taking off that subplot uh, entirely. And, uh, and uh, also who is it that marches in at the end? I can't remember. Fortinbras. Is that who it is? Uh, yeah. comes and takes over Denmark at the end. Like that plot gets gets cut. Like there's all these elements that have been found as ways to trim Hamlet and still try and present Hamlet uh, for an audience and giving the beats that you expect. You know the the um, you know the to be or not to be speech. The get thee to a nunnery speech. The murder of Polonius. The big duel at the finale. And it turns out you you can drop some characters and no one really notices <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in, in Hamlet, which is a weird, weird thing for like you, you said, Ed, uh, you, like you said, it was your 12th grade text that everyone said, like, this is, this is the text that everyone should know. I think Hamlet carries that weight, like just culturally, like through osmosis, we all know Hamlet is special. We all know that that is one of the great works that has been produced. Um, and yet we, you know, we're, we th- there's there's fat that gets cut all the time in performances of hamlet uh that doesn't mm-hmm. cause outcry from purists uh and so it's it's just fascinating like you said i think some of it is definitely like the the amount of time uh and and the number the just the vast number of adaptations that have happened for shakespeare we kind of say well of course everyone has to try and put their own stamp on it i think when we see some of those issues with modern fandoms of like a book series that they love and it's like well okay we're getting our singular adaptation of this and therefore it must be perfect and match what the audience has in their minds or you know the fans have in their minds when they're reading the text because there's you know as far as they know there's only going to be one that's done and if it doesn't do exactly what the audiences want that's it you know the the chance has been missed but with Shakespeare it's kind of like well there's always another Shakespeare adaptation that's coming so do whatever you want yeah exactly well uh Jacqueline do you have any final thoughts on Rosencrantz and Guildenstern or dead or Tom Stoppard's in general I think we covered it. Yeah, uh, this is, I think, a text that is definitely worth engaging with, uh, however you can find it, audience. So if you can go find the 1990 play, go right ahead. Or if you see that, you know, your local college is doing an adaptation of it uh, on stage, go ahead and go go get that. I think it's it's a wonderful text. And um, we, we talked about a lot of the heavy themes that are present. But again, I just want to highlight, it is really playful and fun. And I think it's something that actors would just have so much fun playing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, that it would be infectious for, for an audience. Uh, even as it is, like we're, we're talking about death over and over and over again, 
but there's uh, so much wit in the lines that it's going to affect the whole theater. All right, Jacqueline, whenever we have a first-time guest, and thank you for coming on as a first-time guest, we like to ask a question about great characters for you, because uh, this whole podcast is geared around great characters and great stories. So, Jacqueline, if you could have a dinner party with any uh, three to five fictional characters from any text, who would you want to have hang out with you for an evening just so you could, so you could sit back and enjoy the conversation? This was an interesting question for me because I realized that my answer really depended on whether or not I thought the characters would like each other. That <laughs> if I didn't think the characters would click with each other, I would just be so stressed out by the clashing personalities all evening that I couldn't enjoy them individually. So my kind of curated list of characters I came up with um, was Sansa Stark from the Game of Thrones series, Shallan from Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight Archive, Leia Organa, and then Anne Lister, who is a real person, but I specifically want the version of Anne Lister portrayed in HBO's Gentleman Jack, who has been fictionalized, so I think it counts. So I haven't seen Gentleman Jack, and I'm not super familiar with Anne Lister. I do know enough about, you know, the existence of Game of Thrones and Star Wars and the other ones, and Brandon Sanderson's works. So Anne Lister, what, could you tell me a little bit about, more about her? Yeah, so Anne Lister, she lived in the 18th, in 18th century England, and her uncle left his estate to her. Um, and so she was kind of unusually powerful and wealthy and independent for a woman of the time. And so she, she travels to Paris and isn't allowed to enroll in the university. So she convinces the uh, professors to tutor her privately. And she's... Um, uh, she is one of the, the earliest lesbians that we have really detailed information about because she just kept, I think, 18 folios worth of diaries. And all of the information about her relationships was written in code that was only cracked in the 1930s. And she eventually manages to get this other woman to fall in love with her. And they take the sacrament together at Anglican Church and consider themselves married and just live as unofficially married lesbians in 18th century England when you would think such a thing wouldn't be possible and she is just this incredibly witty incredible like razor sharp bright woman who um like these other characters like Sansa and Leia and Shallan kind of looks at the uh the ways that society tries to constrain her role and says I think I would be happier doing something much cooler than that. <laughs> I would prefer not to do what I'm expected to. I'm going to exactly. go do what I want. Uh, all right. Well, I, I think that theme certainly fits into Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Dead, where we see two characters who just do what they've been told to do by their creators <laughs> and kind of ruminate for an entire play about whether or not they should, but then just end up doing it. And it's you're left feeling kind of, uh, melancholy about, about how yes. things turn out for I, them. I really want to be an analyster, but my personality is so much more of a Rosencrantz. <laughs> um, and who was the the one from the Brandon Sanderson? I haven't read Stormlight Archives yet. What was that character? Uh, Shallan. Okay. Yeah. And uh, if you could give me a brief sketch of her as well. So she... Um, she is uh, the youngest daughter of a bunch of boys in this very minor noble house, and the father has essentially ruined the house, and she starts off 
trying to steal this very powerful magical artifact from one of the other main characters. And to do so, she gets adopted as her ward and gradually finds out that she has magical powers herself and ends up being uh, this kind of group of elite legendary warriors. But she starts out as just this very quiet little character who is just very selfishly trying to do what her father told her to, even though she feels so guilty about it. And and she morphs into this... um, she can create illusions, and so she creates multiple different personas, and one of them is kind of like this swaggering, pirate-like, low-life character who's the complete opposite from her, and she comes to really um, just explore basically a lot of different empowerment fantasies uh, that are pulling her in different directions, and she finally manages to integrate them all into a version of herself that she actually likes and that is making decisions for herself. And uh, my understanding from Lord, uh, from, from Game of Thrones is that everyone is just warring to be the, the new leader of the world, right? So that's who we yeah. have there. And then uh, Leia Organa, like literally is the impetus for Star Wars, her <laughs> stealing the Death yeah. Star plans and, and uh, delivering that. That kicks off all of Star Wars, uh, you know, one of the, the most sprawling franchises that we have. So this idea of like agentiveness seems to be at the core for a lot of these characters that you want to hang out with. Mm-hmm. That's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to go check out episode number 62, when we talked about Much Ado About Nothing, if you want a little more Shakespeare uh, in your podcast, or episode number 101, when we talked about Northern Exposure, if you want a little more postmodern explorations of meaning of life. Uh, You can reach us by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod or at jdorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Dizminute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We enjoy our discussions with our listeners there. Uh, Jacqueline, do you have anything you want to promote or any social media you want to shout out? Um, Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at J underscore N underscore Foster, where I tweet a lot about politics and history and uh, really lame puns. (laughs) There are no lame puns. Uh, there are, I've gone back all and forth. That's what makes them uh, wonderful. Yes, I, I think I've gone back and forth in the history of this podcast on my position on punning. And uh, I think right now I'm landing on every pun is a worthwhile pun that should be made. Yes, but, but like the best puns just make you like full body cringe. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I, I, I reserve the right to change my position on puns in the future, just depending on my mood. All right. Well, thank you again for listening. And we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> sorry. <coughs> I was about to do the outro and I knew I was going to make it. So sorry, Andrew. One more edit point for you besides that one in the middle. <clears throat>